Y'all can answer this question by raising your hands if you'd like. Uh, or if not, uh, answer it in your head anyway. How many hypocrites do we have in here? <laughs> How many sinners do we have in here? I want you guys to know that your pastor is a hypocrite and a sinner. And I have a serious issue with any pastor who would not admit that. If anybody attends a church whose pastor thinks that they don't sin, I would advise you to flee from that immediately. I talked about this with our discipleship group this last week, and I mentioned that to them. Because I think that we have a, I think you got two problems a lot of times in churches. Not necessarily, not necessarily ours. We got a big problem a lot of times in other churches. Those that pastors get put on a pedestal. They either put themselves on a pedestal, thinking that they are above being human, or the congregations put them on a pedestal to a point where they view that person as above being human. And I mentioned that to our group this week. Uh, because I'm just like you. I've got to talk my stuff out. And that's why I believe in discipleship. That's why I believe in those groups that we're doing on Wednesday nights. And that's why I believe in the, in the prayer groups that we were doing on Tuesdays. And the, and the previous discipleship groups that we were doing on Thursdays. Because that's how we disciple one another. If we hold that sin inside of our hearts, it's just going to fester and fester and fester and get worse. And I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want that stuff to grow in me. That's part of what it means to be disciple, to be discipled and allowing ourselves to be discipled. None of us are perfect, are perfect although I think we should certainly seek perfection. But yes, I'm a hypocrite. I preach to you guys a lot about fervent prayer. I preach to you guys... During the course of when we of the time we weren't meeting during the coronavirus, um, about a couple months ago, I preached about a six-week sermon series on prayer because I believe in it. I believe in fervent prayer. I believe in the reality of, of the possibilities of fervent, heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching prayer, and I believe God wants us to answer our prayers if we will just pray together and seek Him. I believe in that. And I preach to you guys about it a lot. But I'm a hypocrite. Because I struggle to pray those same heartfelt prayers in my own home with my own family. I struggle sometimes to go to God first thing in the morning and make that connection with Him. I preach to you guys about the fruits of the Spirit because I believe in them. And I believe that's how we judge Christian character in all honesty. The fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Yet oftentimes I will indulge in self-righteous bitterness and anger and pride and all forms of self-centeredness and selfishness. Here's a big one. When I watch the news, which I try not to a whole lot 
as of late or when I follow social media, I have a tendency to want to indulge in that self-righteous anger against those who don't think the way that I think. I wonder how many of us today are guilty of the same thing. That's part of the culture where we're at. We like to feel good about ourselves. We like to indulge in that self-righteous anger. How many of us find a little bit of self-righteous satisfaction in identifying and in really persecuting those who we deem to be the enemy and the cause of all of our problems and all of our woes. The truth is that we are all sinners and we're all hypocrites. That's not something to brag about, but it is what it is, as they like to say today. Even those of us who have the best intentions to glorify God, to embrace the teachings of Jesus Christ, all of us fall short pretty much every day. Although I do agree, believe that those are the standards that we are called to live by, I fall short, and we all do. I think the answer of that lies in repentance. We talked about confession last week at, uh, at Oak Grove, and that's really where it starts. I believe in taking deep, honest looks at ourselves, our motives, our thoughts, our words, our actions, because I think that's what Christ and Scripture call us to do and be. And I believe in confession, whatever that may look like in our own lives. I believe in confessing not only to God, but in confessing to another person because I believe that brings healing to us. I believe it brings healing spiritually. And a lot of times it brings healing physically and certainly emotionally. But the follow-up with that confession comes repentance. And that's where we get to today. And I'm not just talking about... We'll get into this a little bit deeper in a few minutes, but not just personal repentance. So far I've mentioned personal sins. But there are sins that we're also guilty of as a culture. We call those corporate sins. The most popular word to describe that today is systemic sins. It's those things that we engage in or those things that we allow that ultimately snowball into something bigger that affects the entire culture around us. I'll mention a couple of those specifics too in a minute. But that's where we are today, personally and as the church of Jesus Christ and certainly as a culture outside of the church of Jesus Christ. We're stuck in this pattern. We're stuck in a pattern of sin. We're stuck in a pattern of personal sin and we're stuck in a pattern of systemic or corporate or communal sin. And that's what we're talking about today on Repentance Sunday. And the title of sermon today is basically it's our turn. It's our turn to seek to understand, to admit, to confess, and to turn away from our role in society, whether it's within the church or whether it pays, applies to the larger society as, whole, as a whole. Like I said in the beginning of the service today, I think a lot of times we as a church, big church, not our church, as a whole. We like to point fingers. We like to point fingers at everybody else. Especially people who aren't even Christians, by the way. 
We like to point fingers at the non-Christians who are causing all these problems. What we don't like to do is be honest with ourselves a lot of times. What we don't like to do is be honest in the areas of where we not only engage in personal and corporate sin, but when we are silent in the face of it. When we are silent and we are complicit in the face of sin that is literally killing people, but also destroying the society in which we live. So the name of the sermon today is, It's Our Turn. It's our turn. Most of us know the story of Jonah, the story of Nineveh. Remember the big, the big whale and all that. We're going to read a scripture out of Jonah today. And uh, as we're doing that, try to think maybe, try to think, try to think maybe where we can put ourselves in this story. Because we, we can certainly find ourselves throughout, throughout the story of Jonah. It's a very short book, by the way. But the, the scripture we're going to read is coming from Jonah chapter 3. And Jonah's a really cool book. I forgot how cool this, how cool this book was. It's, it's so very short, too. It's only two pages in my, in, my, in my little Bible here. It's four chapters long. But there's so much, so much good that we can glean from this. And I'm going to be reading the 10, 10 verses, 3, 1 through 10. I want you to see the call that God puts on this nation. First of all, the call that God puts on this nation. Secondly, you're going to see the judgment. And I know the judgment ain't a big thing that we like to talk about today, but it's a reality. It was a reality then. It's a reality now. Second comes the judgment. Then I want you to see the response. I want you to see the response of the Ninevites. And what happens? So Jonah 3, 1 through 10. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This is after he tried to flee and Wound up in the belly of the whale and all that. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time and said, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. So this time Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Ponder that one for a while. It took them three days to walk across this city. That's how big Nineveh was. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming this. Here's the judgment that's coming. This is, what, this is the word of the Lord that Jonah was proclaiming to him, the judgment. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites at that time believed God. And here's what they did. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, all of them, all of them, key word there is all. Picture that in your head. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from the throne, he took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation that he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and the animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows? God didn't promise them anything. He just said, judgment's coming, by the way. He didn't say, I'm going to help you if you repent. 
He didn't even tell them that. They just did it. Who knows, the king says. God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Last verse. When God saw, when God saw what they did and how... Hey! When God saw what they did and how they turned away from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. The word of God for the people of God. Make no mistake about this. God loved Nineveh. Doesn't seem like it in, that, in those verses, does it? Number one thing we got to understand is God loves, God loved Nineveh. Just as he loves me, just as he loves you, just as he loves Brock's United Methodist, just as he loves the United States, just as he loves China, just as he loves North Korea, just as he loves all the African countries and all the European countries, etc., etc. There is not a soul or a nation on the face of the earth, nor has there ever been, nor will there ever will be, that God does not love. God does not love sin, however... And as we see in these scriptures, God was proclaiming through Jonah that a judgment was coming because of their sin. Uh, I'm going through a class right now, and we're, re -going, we're, we're going through the book of Amos and, and Hosea. And it just reminded me of this scripture that we're going over today of how many places throughout scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, we see prophets proclaiming God's judgment because of the sins of nations. He loves them dearly, just as he loves all of us. But he hates sin. And there are consequences to sin. There are always consequences to sin. And we've talked about that before, so I won't get too deep into it. One of the main sins that we know about, about Nineveh, by the way, actually the only sin that's mentioned in the Bible specifically regarding the nation of Nineveh, is violence. These were a violent people. This is a violent nation, and that's, again, the only very specific sin that you're going to find mentioned regarding Nineveh. Apply that to where we are today. Apply that to the violence that we see on television, the violence we see on social media, we don't really experience a whole lot of that here on the local level. But I have also preached on violence before. And I'm not talking about beating people up. I'm talking about where it starts, and it starts in our hearts. It escalates through our words. It also escalates through our fingertips. And y'all know what I'm talking about. Then it escalates into beating people up. The violence in our hearts is where it all begins. God warned Nineveh. He said, 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be overthrown. And those words shook that nation to its very core. Those words shook that nation and they believed him. They believed the word of God at that point. And Nineveh responded correctly. They believed God. All that stuff that you read about sackcloth and, and, and ashes and sitting down in ashes, that's, that, 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 that was how they repented. That was a method of repentance. They believed God. They fasted. They, they humbled themselves. And they cried out to God. They turned from their evil ways and they turned from that violence. 
without any kind of promise, by the way. And let me repeat that. There was no promise from God. If you do this, I'll do that. That wasn't even there. They just did it. They just did it. And they were sincere about it. They had true and sincere hearts. And of course, God did respond. And He did respond compassionately. The rest of that story, by the way, is that Jonah wasn't very happy about the way God responded. If you ever want to read the rest of that. But they were not overturned. That's how God responded. He did respond compassionately as a result. They didn't suffer. They caused God to relent. God relented. God ain't out to punish us. I can't stand when people think and when people teach that God's main motivation is out to punish us. He is never out to punish us. He might correct us. He might call us out on our sin. But God's judgment is not punitive. He's not out to punish us. And it may not even look like that when we read the Old Testament. But if you think that way, then you don't understand God. If somebody's ever taught you that God is out to hurt us, to punish us, that His justice is punitive, they're wrong. But He does correct us, and He does pass judgment. So we look at Jonah, we look at Nineveh, we look at the judgment that God pronounced through Jonah. We look how they responded. They responded in faithfulness and, uh, and true humility. As a result, God relented. What's that scripture from the Psalms? Somebody, Crystal, you probably remember it. The one we, we, we've talked about. It's come up so many times about, about, about how compassionate and gentle God is. I can't remember. If you gotta, it's, just, it's cropped up a lot of times recently. But that's who God is. That's who God is. At the end of the day, that's, where, that's, where, that's, where, that's who He is. So they respond, and God responds. He responds with that compassion because that's what He wants ultimately to do. How do we know when a nation needs to turn from its evil? How do we know that? How do we, how do we recognize when a nation needs to return or repent from its evil, to turn from its evil? One of the most famous scriptures that you are going to hear preachers preach, and especially all the big shots during times like today that we're seeing, comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. You're going to hear people preach on that. You're going to hear people use it a lot. But Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 shows a number of things. It shows incidents of drought. This is, in, this is God's judgment, by the way. It shows incidents of drought in the land, and it shows incidents of, of land being devoured by locusts. But what you hear preached a lot during, especially this time, you hear it, <laughs> every presidential election, you hear it. 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. How many of us have heard that? Many, many times. This goes back to what I was talking about earlier. I get, a, I get a feeling, I get a feeling a lot of times when I hear folks preach on this that they ain't talking to people in the church. That they want to call out all the bad sins of everybody else who aren't Christians. But when I hear them preach these words, it's like, well, I'm really preaching to folks that, that I don't like. Folks that I don't agree with. I, I'm not talking to you guys here in the church. 
Go back and reread that scripture. That scripture right there is very, very, very much specifically for the church. That scripture is very, very much, could not be any more specific that that is written for God's people. Not people outside of a relationship with God. It's written for God's people. Look at the pronouns that are in that scripture. Let me do them one more time. If my people... Starts it off right there. If my people, the people of God, my people. I'm going to circle them just to see how many times it's in there. If my people who are called by my name, there's another pronoun, God. He's talking to a very specific group of folks. Us. Will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. And I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. God asked for humbling prayer. He asked for seeking and turning. And He will hear and He will forgive and He will heal. But it begins with us. It don't begin with everybody else. It begins with us, folks. We love to point fingers. God cannot be more specific in these scriptures, Ezekiel chapter 22, I don't have time to go into it, but Ezekiel chapter 22 references the corruption of prophets, priests, princes, and, and the people as part of judgment. Joel chapters 1 and 2 calls for a return to God. And it, and it, it, it relays or it... Or, or it uh, states that, that he may relent on his judgment. The same scripture speaks of corruption through religious and political and societal leaders. Does this sound familiar? God gives us signs when it's time to turn. God gave them signs in the Old Testament. He gave them gave us signs throughout history when it's time to turn. And it begins with us. A lot of times we are part of the problem. Here's some things the United States leads the world in. We lead the world in illegal and prescription drug use. We lead the world in rape. We lead the world in murder. We lead the world in total crimes. We lead the world in incarceration. Let me throw this figure out to you. The United States has about 4% of the world's population, yet we incarcerate, we, we, we boast 75% of every person who is incarcerated in the world today. We lead the world in the creation of pornography and the distribution of pornography. We lead the world in divorce, and I'm not beating up divorce, folks. I am one of them, but we lead the world in it. And, of course, we lead the world in abortion. I'm not going to give you a partisan political message. I'm going to, I'm going to go after everybody because the Bible goes after everybody. What about the way that we feel about our immigrants and our refugees? Because I can point you to ample places in Scripture that tell us how God feels about foreigners, immigrants, 
and refugees. How do we feel about these folks? How do we respond to them? How do we treat the poorest among us? How do we treat the sickest among us? How do we treat our elderly? I preached about the elderly several weeks ago at Oak Grove. Specifically widows. I would say the elderly during this time in the United States have, 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 have been dealt the brunt of the coronavirus and we've stuck them away. We've forgotten about them. My wife has an aunt who was involved in a traffic accident several months ago in which her husband died and I have no idea in the world how she didn't die. She is stuck by herself in a living facility, assisted living facility and is unable to have visitors because of the coronavirus. And that is the saddest thing I've ex I have experienced personally. How do we treat our elderly? Would anybody have imagined in February, let's go back a few months, would anybody have imagined in February a virus that would have killed 200,000 United States citizens? Would anybody back in February if I had told you we were going to be facing a global economic shutdown, a rise in depression and suicide, the racial division that's going on in our country, the extreme political uh, polarization, and all of the distrust that we have in churches and other institutions, the riots, violence, and all this, y'all would have said I was crazy. A lot has happened in six months, and we can't help but ask ourselves, are we experiencing the judgment of God? It's never happened in my lifetime, not this much, not this much at once. But you got to ask yourselves, we have to ask ourselves, are we experiencing now, are we in the midst of the judgment of God? I don't know, I'm not God. I don't know that, I can't say that and I'm not going to tell you that. But I believe 100% that He's trying to get our attention. I don't have any doubt about that. He's trying to get our attention. I, sometimes, folks, the enemy is me. Sometimes the enemy is us. And sometimes it's us who God is calling to get their attention. Maybe it's time for us to stop pointing fingers. Maybe it's time for us to stop, to start turning off the news. And maybe it's time to stop picking and choosing those that we don't like and those that we fought with all our problems and start looking inside at ourselves. Could it be that we are so busy being offended by other people that we fail to ask ourselves if we have offended God? Could it be that I am so busy pointing fingers and being offended at this person or this group so much that I simply don't recognize that maybe I'm the one who's offending God? I know that Jesus loves us. I'll preach to you guys all, that, all, all day long that. I just did. I just told you that God's ultimate character is love. And I believe that with all my heart because I know it. But I wonder sometimes, maybe, maybe the idea of a loving Jesus doesn't allow him, doesn't allow us to accept the idea of maybe he's offended by our sin. Our sins of omission, our sins of commission. Those things that we blatantly do and those things that we avoid or those things that we don't do, that we should do.
We have called, and we are just, I've heard people say this statement, and I, and I can't stand it a lot of times. But I agree with it, and I agree with it as an individual, as a Christian, as a pastor, and I see it in the church. We have called evil good and good evil. It's our time. If we are indeed, or maybe even maybe, experiencing the judgment of God, it's our time to look at ourselves. It's our time to repent. It's time for a change of heart, by the way. And that, that's what repentance is. And I don't... You know, I grew up with those pastors who had a hard line and very, very rigid view on what repentance was and a finger in your face and uh, laying down a lot of guilt. And, and maybe, maybe I'm guilty of the same thing. If so, I don't mean to be. <clears throat> but repentance literally means to do a 180. It means to change my mind about something. It means to change my heart about something. It means to, first of all, make that realization that I'm not following God. Most of us know God's will a lot of, most of the time. Make that realization, make that confession, and then I make that turn. It's changing my mind. That's what repentance is. It's not necessarily mean or ugly or, or even guilt-ridden. It's just saying, you know what? I'm not following God. I'm not following what I know is right. Whether, a per whether as an individual or as a society, I'm not doing what God has called us to do. My, my thinking is messed up. My words are messed up. My heart is messed up. And it's making that 180. It's making that turn. That's what repentance is. We say we want revival, but do we? We say, I hear calls for revival all the time, but do we? Do we really want revival in our churches? Do we really want revival? Do we really want... You know, here's, here's, here's the phrase that, that we hear all the time, our nation to turn back to God. If we do, it starts with us. Less finger pointing at those outside the church and more repentance and confession of people inside the church. If we want revival, this is where it starts, with us. We can't force revival. I heard this this past weekend. I went to a little conference over the weekend. This was a wonderful statement. We can't force revival, but we can certainly posture ourselves to receive it. We cannot force revival in our church, in our nation, anywhere. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But we can certainly posture ourselves to receive it. And that begins right here. And it begins with repentance. Are we willing to repent? Are we willing to repent? I'm about to throw one out there and y'all can, can like me afterwards or not. But are we willing to repent? I'm going to give you a wonderful example. We are facing right now the... Some of, you, some of you folks are, may, 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 may differ from my opinion here because you may be a little bit older and have experienced something worse. I have never experienced racial tensions like we're experiencing right now in the United States. Never. It's always been there. It's always been, it's always been kind of hidden, just waiting to boil over. But we're seeing it now. We're seeing it now. Are we willing to search our hearts and repent of this sin? Are we willing to have these conversations, these honest conversations with one another? Are we willing to repent of our sin? Now, here's where I have an issue. I don't hear preachers telling folks to do that. I hear calls for unity. 
and that type of thing. But until I start seeing pastors up here in this pulpit confessing their racism and calling their church to confess their own racism, it ain't going to happen. Have the nerve to get up there and do what's right. Whether your congregation agrees with you or not. Because that's the answer. We got the answer to all these problems, by the way. We've got the answer. The answer's Jesus. The answer's Jesus. <laughs> and His kingdom. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Y'all know the rest of it. Nor slave, nor free, no male or female, no black or white or Hispanic. For we are what? Terry Steptoe, I know you know it. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus' kingdom looks like. Until we got the nerve to talk about this as Christians, it ain't going to change. But we've got the answers. Want to know the answer to violence? Jesus. And God's kingdom. We repent and we turn from our wicked ways. But it begins, church, with us. I don't know what your sins are individually. <laughs> I know what a lot of our corporate sins are. I think they're very obvious. I think violence is one of them. I think the subject that I just talked about is one of them. But they're all over the place. If we won't change in our churches, if we won't change in our culture, if we won't change in our nations, it's not going to come from a presidential election. It's going to come from the church repenting. We have, <laughs> I don't care where you stand, we as a church have relied way too much on the government to do our job and be our savior. No president, no senate, no house of representatives is our savior. The only savior I've got is Jesus. They ain't going to save the world. They ain't going to save the nation. Christ will, and Christ can. And it starts with us. I'm going to ask Susan, if she will, to come play a song. And I want to open up the altar for, for anything, anything. If you just need to pray, please come pray. If you feel like you need to be prayed for, please love to pray with you, love to pray for you. We got to make up our minds at some point. Are we going to be Christians or are we just going to be half-hearted believers? <laughs>